Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast, your weekly dose of talking about watching soccer on TV, online and apps. Coming up on episode 58, we feature an interview with NBC's Lee Dixon to discuss the brand new Arsenal documentary about the famous 1989 season. Plus, we have news about Rebecca Lowe's temporary replacement at NBC while she's in Korea for the Winter Olympics. And... Facebook is making big moves to try to acquire soccer rights and much, much more. Plus, we have letters from you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer. I'm joined today by Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, before we jump in, just, I do want to mention that uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had the interview with uh, Kyle Martino on the show. Uh, obviously, somebody that uh, has been working for NBC, so it's a uh, it's a good sweet spot for us in terms of interviewing somebody that uh, is working in television and is now running for the USSF uh, presidential election. I do want to mention that we have, uh, it's open. So if there's any other candidates that are interested in being interviewed in the, the what, three weeks that we have left before the, um, the election in uh, February in Orlando, which we'll be at uh, covering, uh, they're more than welcome to contact us and we'd love to interview them. Kathy Carter is somebody I reached out to in December to uh, request an interview, and we're still waiting. It's uh, basically on Kathy Carter's side, her press people have been delaying uh, a response, and we keep on asking. So hopefully um, they'll come to a decision pretty soon so we can uh, have a chance to interview her and hear her thoughts about uh, the presidential election, uh, U.S. soccer, as well as the, the TV rights side of things, and uh, lots of different questions there. So, Kartik, uh, before we jump in, any, anything to add in regards to, I mean, three weeks to go, we're, we're going to be there before you know it. Yeah, and, and I think that there are a lot of good candidates. I think all eight candidates have uh, some virtues to them, including Hope Solo. I know some people really are, are agitated about her candidacy, but uh, I, I think there's a lot of thoughtfulness coming from uh, multiple candidates and the discourse between them has been raised. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, particularly uh, impressed, I, I will say this, I'll single a couple guys out, I'm particularly impressed by the thoughtfulness of uh, Mike Vinograd and, and Steve Gantz. So, uh, but there's uh, still a couple of weeks to go and, and we'll, see, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, definitely. We'd love to chat with them on the, on the air, if, if at all possible. So uh, before we jump into what we've been watching this past week, Kartik, I do want to mention that I, I think it's important to give some love to be in sports. Uh, 
they're often a broadcaster that gets, um, I guess, a, lo- a bad rap in the United States. A lot of people complain about uh, the accessibility of the network and the production values and this, that, and the other. I mean, I think soccer fans always have complaints about anything and everything. But from this past weekend, uh, and not, not just this past weekend, but for several years, but this past weekend, I was kind of thinking about, about this a little bit uh, more. And... Um, thinking about how undervalued they are in many ways because with being sports we have television access now to you I mean everything from la liga Serie A, Ligue 1, uh, the turkish super league uh, so on and so forth and in addition to that that they put, put in a lot of hard work in terms of all of their other programs uh, the shoulder programming that they do the, the extra uh, each night and uh, this past weekend watching um Kay Murray hosting the extra and having uh, Thomas Rongan and Gary Bailey there doing their analysis in the coach's corner, uh, showing highlights from uh, this past weekend's La Liga matches, and then also showing highlights from Premier League matches and other leagues from around the world. I really think that they're doing a lot of hard work. Um, it's getting unre- unrecognized in many ways, but to me, it's great to have still a relatively a, a soccer network yes they have other sports but to have a, a network that's uh, primarily soccer that you can tune into uh, every weekend or every every day and there's always soccer on as opposed to espn which we'll get to in a little bit but you mean a lot of these big games are not on on television they're bumped to espn3 uh, same thing with Fox. I mean, unless it's the World Cup or the Champions League uh, or Major League Soccer, um, all you mean some of the other games that they have, the rights to are bumped to Fox Soccer Match Pass, uh, so on and so, so forth. Um, NBC has got the Premier League and it's kind of Premier League all the time, but it'd be nice to have uh, NBC pick up some more uh, rights to other soccer leagues from around the world. But anyway, that, that's just something I kind of thought about this past weekend. Uh, just want to give some love to be in sports. All right, Kartik, so let's jump into what you've been watching this past week. Yeah, so uh, obviously uh, Friday we had uh, two games, uh, two interesting games going on at once, which is a rarity on a Friday. We had a a match between Hertha Berlin and Borussia Dortmund, which was an entertaining match, uh, a match that Hertha Berlin would have won had uh, they not – yeah, I'm trying to re- replay this in my mind, but obviously uh, Solomon Kalou puts a shot uh, on goal, uh, beats Berkey, and a guy who's in an offside position decides to tap it in. <laughs> right? Um, so that's uh, disallowed, rightly, and then uh, Dortmund comes back and equalizes a few minutes later, uh, but that was a very entertaining game. At the same time, Darby was playing Bristol City with our friend John Champion on the call, and uh, that was a bit of a, a dull draw. Obviously, Bristol City going ahead looking ahead to the league cup second leg where they played very very well uh, against manchester city a match i by the way i still have not seen um but i do know uh, the results and saw the highlights on espn fc uh, late last night when i watched that uh, brighton chelsea on saturday morning was a entertaining game a really unflattering scoreline for brighton it didn't do them justice i thought they had some real quality in this match and uh, looked good at times uh, Watched a fair amount of Bundesliga at uh, 9.30 Eastern time, uh, as well as uh, there were Premier League games, uh, uh, Premier League matches going on at the same time, Burnley and Manchester United, which was a, a, a 
pretty good game in the first half. I mean, Burnley really had opportunities, it seemed, early. And then, uh, after falling down 1-0, had a couple of opportunities, but were defeated 1-0. Uh, Man City, Newcastle on NBC over the year, later the day, in the day, Arlo White uh, talked about his return to the States. Uh, so that was uh, uh, maybe the big highlight from that match, um, which was one of a, a, a dull match otherwise. Uh, Southampton Spurs uh, and Bayern Werder Bremen on Sunday were more interesting matches uh, to, to keep an eye on. I thought uh, ESPN's coverage and, and uh, of the USA-Denmark game, Chris, was very good, women's game, on Sunday night. Now, uh, Seb Salazar and Julie Foudy have now worked together a few times, and they're finding – a chemistry, a sweet spot, uh, both calling the matches, analyzing the matches, and then doing some advocacy. So I was particularly taken by the conversation between Salazar and Fowdy about uh, what the Danish women had to go through to get uh, a fair collective bargaining agreement, or what we would consider an equivalent of collective bargaining agreement, having to um, uh, uh, sit out a friendly, which then got canceled, and then had to have a strike, a player strike, uh, against Sweden in a World Cup qualifier. And Fowdy believes it was the only way to make the point to the Danish FA. This thing had been going on for about a year. The FA hadn't budged. As soon as that um, happened and they went on strike, presumably they're going to be forced to forfeit this match, right? They'll still go to a, a UEFA tribunal or, or what have you, but presumably it'll be a 3-0 loss for Denmark. Uh, the Danish FA caved in, into the players' demands. And unfortunately, as they talked about on air, this is the only way you can make the point in the women's game uh, to not be treated as second-class citizens uh, with your with your football associations, which I think, again, uh, to me, means um, when it comes down to it, you're in a situation where um, players have to take the power upon themselves in the women's game, which is an issue in this U.S. soccer election. Equal pay is just one component of it. So uh, I thought that that was a really good uh, conversation that was had. Um, yeah, Carter, and then the next, I, go I, ahead. I, I missed that game. I didn't see it. But uh, it's uh, it's great to hear that because it, in many ways, I think ESPN sees themselves as, yes, they're a, a sports broadcaster, but they also see themselves as, as having a platform uh, to have intelligent conversations and discussions about topics that sometimes are a little bit... Um, little bit uh, uncomfortable and but it's, it's yeah. an important platform to have those type of conversations on national television and uh, I applaud them for that I mean that that's great and Seb Salazar Julie Fadi were big fans of because they speak their minds they I mean there's it's a lot of honesty a lot of transparency uh, they, they are what they are and and you hear that and see that on television yeah, it was about 15 minutes or 20 minutes into the match. They went right there and spent several minutes on it talking about this issue, which was uh, outstanding. And right, that's what you get from ESPN, which you sometimes don't get from other networks that cover the sport. Speaking of which, the next day, Max and Herc podcast, Hercules Gonzalez from about minute 40 onward really exposed a lot about the um, Jonathan Gonzalez saga. I don't want to get too deep into it here. I just recommend our listeners, if you're interested in the Jonathan Gonzalez issue, which I've been on a number of other shows to discuss, or um, just in general, the, the scouting 
and recruitment from the U.S. men's national team perspective, you're going to want to listen to this. Again, Hercules Gonzalez, uh, one of our favorites here because he speaks his mind. He does his reporting. He's objective. He's not uh, beholden to anyone uh, in U.S. soccer, in Major League Soccer, in any entity. And he's shown that again here with some really fantastic uh, independent reporting. And, and uh, Max Breders is always uh, – Fantastic job on there as well. So, uh, really big week for ESPN. Um, uh, yeah, no League Cup semifinals on ESPN uh, too because of the Australian Open and contractual obligations. But uh, ESPN FC has been able to um, really kind of because they obviously have the bumper rights to to the League Cup. Focus on their ESPN FC shows on these uh, second legs of the semifinals. So there's been some really good discussion uh, on on those shows about Chelsea Arsenal, how uh, this the Conte situation is affecting Chelsea, how um, how of course uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan's arrival and perhaps Aubameyang's arrival affect Arsenal. So uh, again, this isn't a plug for ESPN, but check check those shows out as well. Yeah, and it's uh, one of those things that uh, today we're recording this podcast on a Wednesday. Uh, we're going to release it on the Thursday. But uh, the UEFA Nations League, uh, also they had the draw live on ESPN3 uh, this morning. It was at 6 o'clock in the morning, Eastern time. So I missed it live, but I did uh, catch um, the, the, the draw afterwards. And, and we'll talk about that in our news, news segment. But uh, yeah, ESPN's definitely still got some uh, really um, enticing soccer rights and um i really like their coverage so in terms of some of the other things that i've watched kartik uh last week i watched the uh fa cup replays we had the chelsea norwich game and uh the swansea wolves game which i listened to uh on the radio commentary through the swansea city website i uh, also watched uh, copa del rey matches um Espanyol against Barcelona uh, from the first leg. Uh, of course, Ray Hudson commentating this one. And uh, one of the lines he mentioned uh, after Espanyol scored the goal to uh, to win it 1-0 in that first leg, he's, he said that there'll be some hoochie-coochie uh, in the blue side of Barcelona tonight. Of course, it's a, a Barcelona derby. So uh, typical, yeah. typical Ray Hudson there. Uh, Leganes against uh, Real Madrid. Watch that match too. Uh, like you, watched a bunch of the, the Premier League matches over the weekend. Uh, also saw uh, Calgary against uh, AC Milan, uh, Schalke against uh, Hanover, uh, Real Betis against Barcelona. Uh, again, Phil Shane and Ray Hudson commentating that one. That was uh, an enjoyable one in terms of um, how good Barcelona is to watch this season. Uh, Swansea against Liverpool, Kartik. I watched this one on Monday and um, I cried. I, I, I was. This has been such a, an emotional uh, season, uh, really depressing. Last season was depressing. And I think back in October, I said on this podcast, I said, they're going down. The only salvation they might have, maybe, is if they got a managerial, a managerial change and maybe that might make a difference. But um, at least they're fighting. And, and, that's, and that, that's the biggest thing for me is uh, if they are going to go down, which is still possible, and they, they, they might stay up, uh, at least they go down fighting. And, and it's been much more of a positive performances uh, under Carver Hall from Swansea. And um, I do want to point out, though, that NBC kept on butchering uh, Carver Hall's name. They kept on, uh, I think it was Liam McHugh and Robbie Earle, and, and they kept on uh, saying Cavallo. Uh, through the, the entire broadcast, which was uh, 
kind of irritating. Now, but, uh, we know we know his pronunciation. I've watched him for years at Sheffield Wednesday and read him highly as a manager. And I actually told you that when Swansea hired him. I just thought Swansea doesn't have enough to stay up quality-wise. But they, if they're going to stay up, they've hired the right manager. How do we know how to pronounce his name, though, uh, Chris? The day he was hired by Swansea, Derek Ray was hosting the NBC <laughs> studio. And Derek Ray gets every pronunciation right. Uh, and those of you who aren't familiar with this, Derek Ray takes uh, time uh, time in, uh, in a half, basically, to uh, make sure he's got every pronunciation down properly and to kind of the ethnic preference of the player. So yeah. uh, that's uh, so so that's unfortunately for better or for worse the um, the standard that everyone's judged against. Yeah, and uh, Derek Ray, I, th- I think some of our listeners already know this, but some may not, though, is it goes to the nth degree in terms of getting the pronunciations correctly. He will uh, contact uh, the embassies, the foreign embassies. He will yeah. talk to the players. He will, he, he, that, that's one of his missions in terms of perfection, making sure that um, pronouncing the, the name correctly, which is, you I mean, something simple, but in, in many ways, most of the, the commentators and most of the people within the industry don't go to that, that length. And we saw with NBC too that they're they're just as um, liable to make mistakes, um, also. But uh, anyway, great game. Really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, uh, they had a, a game plan. They executed it perfectly uh, to perfect perfection. It wasn't it wasn't pretty, but it, it worked. And um, and now there's hope and actually there's some more positivity about this team. And uh, they've been probably one of the worst teams. No, not probably. Definitely the worst team to watch this season in terms of how boring they've been under uh, Paul Clements. But now there's a little bit of ray of hope. Yeah. I also want to point out, I forgot this when we went over my uh, my viewing for the week. I, I thought it was a really interesting discussion this week between uh, Liam McHugh and Steve Bauer, who was joining them. Uh, live from uh, the BBC uh, newsroom uh, in the pregame in in the uh, uh, at about two uh, thirty Eastern time, talking about managerial changes, uh, the potential uh, sacking of Pellegrino, the Silva situation, the Paul Lambert coming into Stoke situation. It was more insight than we typically get in one of those segments. So it was uh, and part probably because of circumstances, right? There's a lot going on right now, uh, but it was uh, that was very very interesting and also to hear Bauer's views on uh, on the decision by Manchester City to, to just drop out of the race for Alexis Sanchez, a player they thought they had on two different occasions in the summer and then again beginning of January uh, partly because Pep doesn't want to upset the dressing room and uh, he's got in Kevin De Bruyne I think a player right now that uh, most would consider one of the best in the world. You can't come in and pay somebody uh, who comes from outside twice as much as him. So that's uh, part of the balancing act now. Yeah, and the timing of that, uh, those announcements was perfect. It was just about an hour before the, the broadcast began began for NBC Sports, uh, right. which is not not because of NBC Sports that they made those announcements at that time. But I think, uh, I'm sure the clubs looked at it and thought, okay, we got a big game today on a, on a Monday. Let's announce it you mean, an hour before uh, most broadcasts begin. And then that's the talking point. That's the lead story for, for those uh, that pre-match analysis, uh, which is what we got from NBC Sports. So speaking of NBC Sports, Kartik, let's move on to our TV streaming news. 
Yeah, so as uh, was talked about during the Newcastle-Manchester City match uh, at the Etihad on Saturday on NBC over the air, uh, NBC Sports has made the decision about who will temporarily replace Rebecca Lowe while she's on hosting duties for the Winter Olympics in Korea. The temporary lead presenter for Premier League coverage from now until early March will be Arlo White. So he will be coming back from England to host uh, uh, in the Premier League studio, which he has done before. Now, uh, when Rebecca Lee was on uh, Rebecca Lee, excuse me, Rebecca Lowe was on maternity leave in 2016. He did about half um, that period and then went back to England. And Steve Bauer did the other half. Uh, Steve Bauer's availability now, I think, is is a little less uh, generous for NBC's purposes. So Arlo White's going to be coming back and taking that whole uh, period between now and early March. Yeah, this one this one is interesting. That actually is a little bit of a surprise card tick because I thought it was going to be a slam dunk for Derek Ray to get this. And when, when Derek Ray did uh, do the, the temporary uh, host over the, the holiday period, he was good, but he was a little bit stiff, a little bit uh, almost like too too rehearsed or too scripted in terms of the teleprompter. And, uh, of course, Rebecca Lowe is very relaxed, very... I mean, it's reading the same teleprompter, but uh, in terms of her presenting skills are much better. Now, Arlo White, I think, will do an excellent job as the temporary uh, fill-in for the presenter at NBC Sports. And I think Derek Gray, then, it's up to Derek Gray. I mean, this is an opportunity for him now, hopefully with NBC Sports, to get some of those high-profile games on the weekends that... Um, Arlo White was getting before and we don't know for that for sure but I would I would imagine that's what's, what's going to happen uh, you got Phil Neville that's not going to be involved in the co-commentary now that he's taken the, the England uh, women's national team job so we'll have to see Derek Ray paired with maybe Lee Dixon or Graeme Lasso. Um yeah I mean Derek Ray's the best of the best when it comes to commentating so it's uh, it's actually a good fit and again it goes back to what we've been talking about for a few months Kartik and that's uh, keeping things fresh at NBC Sports because they did get a little bit stale and this is uh, perfect timing to, to freshen things up. Yeah, if you're a fan of Phil ne- of the Phil Neville appointment for the uh, England's w- England women's national team job, don't read the Guardian because it seems like they're crusading hard against uh, against him first getting the job and now that he's gotten the job, uh, some of his tweets in the past and uh, his qualifications, etc. So uh, that's just a little sidebar. Yeah, to me, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's the same thing with Ryan Giggs. I was opposed to Ryan Giggs getting yeah. appointed to yeah. the Welsh job. But now that he's in that position, I'm going to support him. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and hope he does well. And the same thing for uh, Phil, Phil Neville. I mean, he's he has experience as, as a manager, as an assistant manager at Valencia. He does know the game. Um, but people are trying to crucify him before he's even managed or coached a game. Yeah, I think it is uh, an odd appointment, but I, I would point out that it's not like he was the first choice. Hardman uh, has elected to stay with Canada, shifting from the women's team to the men's team. Uh, obviously, Laura Harvey, uh, who I thought would take the job, especially when she left Seattle, has decided to, uh, to take the job at the new Utah uh, team in uh, in NWSL. And uh, I know there was a third high-profile candidate who I'm blanking out on uh, that, that has also turned them down. So, uh, 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 oh yeah, Manchester City's uh, manager, uh, uh, Nick Cushing. So that that's, uh, that's three. That's at least three I know of. There might be several more. So um, maybe cut him some slack. I don't think it's quite the same thing with the Wales job, though. Um, Chris, I do think, however, Wales, um, the progress Wales made 
Chris Coleman deserves a lot of credit, right? But the progress they made was because Gary Speed, who is, was always an inspirational figure for Welsh football, had that job uh, until his until he passed for the 18 months before he passed. I think so much of it had to do with that. Gary Speed had no coaching experience, right? Brian Giggs actually has more coaching experience uh, at a far higher level than Gary Speed did. So for like um, three games? I think. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. But he was an assistant. He was an assistant under Von Hall, who's a uh, don't discount that. Louis Von Hall, he might now have a bad reputation because of however it ended at Manchester United, although maybe he'll be redeemed by Mourinho's behavior. Right. Maybe people are looking at Von Hall more favorably. But he spent two years as a as a assistant to Louis Von Hall. I'm sure he learned a lot in that in that period um, since he had those three games as as. Uh, manager, I, I, I still would not have hired him, Chris. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying I think he has more experience than Gary Speed had when he got the job. And we saw how well Gary Speed did as a former legendary Welsh player. So, yeah. Um, but but my, but my point is, in terms of just like the the press trying to crucify uh, Phil Neville, which which I think to me, just give him the benefit of the doubt. Let him let him give him a chance to see yeah. what he can do. And the same thing for Ryan Giggs. Um, rather than what happened in the past with Gary Speed and others, it's just you know now that he's been appointed, just get behind him, support him, and and hope for the best. And and actually, Phil Neville, I'm going to miss him on the the co commentary. I thought he yeah. did really really well for NBC Sports. So I, I agree. All right, Kotick. So let's move on to the next uh, news item, and that's Bean Sports has uh, grown its overall reach in 2017 by 9%, increasing the total number of viewers from 71 million in 2016 to 77.2 million in 2017, with more than half a million uh, minutes watched in 2017, BN Sports Networks have the highest percentage of soccer programming among all other cable sports networks in the United States. Which is true. I mean, they, they, it's, it's pretty much all day, all the time, uh, soccer, soccer, soccer. And, uh, of course, they've gotten into other sports too. But primarily, it's, it's got to be like, what, 80, 90% of their programming is filled with uh, soccer. Yes. Both on the Spanish yeah. network and, and the English network. Moving on, Facebook has recruited the chief executive of Eurosport to make a multi-billion dollar push to help get digital rights for the social media network. The appointment has been made before the deadline for bids for rights to stream Premier League games in the UK. Uh, this appears to be Facebook concentrating on Europe to acquire rights to soccer leagues. So right now it's not going to have an impact in the US, at least not yet. I have to tell you, Chris, uh, in another one of my uh, roles as a writer, as a software analyst, uh, I, I've been looking at, at this Facebook move this week. So uh, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of speculation about what they might do. And um, I hopefully will have a, a, some written content and also some, obviously some audio content for this podcast uh, on this uh, when the time comes, because they are going to make a move. It's just a question of um, how aggressively and what they acquire. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I mean, I mean, you look at Facebook and you—I mean, it has what over I think over a billion uh, people. The reach—I mean, it's actually gigantic. I mean, much much bigger than Twitter. But when you think about it, if they were able to get say global rights to a specific league, and it doesn't have to be the Premier League, maybe say it's I don't know La Liga global rights in terms of how they can get those those games into households around the world would be staggering. Now, the challenge that they would have, I think, in many ways is that, well, two challenges is one, if they do pick up uh, regional rights, so say they pick up regional rights to La Liga, um, say, I mean, this is hypothetical, in, in say, United Kingdom, uh, and then they have to lock those down so that people outside of uh, the UK cannot watch those games, uh, those La Liga games through Facebook. 
which is which is a shame because I'm sure everyone on Facebook, Facebook will be posting about it, saying, "Hey, here's the link, check it out." Um, the other challenge I think they're going to have too is that uh, the way that Facebook is set up today is it's not very video friendly. It's it, yes, you can watch the videos, but if you don't know where to find them, it's very difficult. And um, they can improve upon that and change that and fix that but it's not going to be a slam dunk overnight just as we've seen with the champions league games that have been on facebook and we've had people posting on facebook i can't find it where is it and people are posting links to illegal streams when facebook and and the fox are showing it live on on facebook is so difficult to navigate with that stuff honestly So, so, I mean, I don't use Facebook very much for that reason because I can't find anything. Yeah, but it, it's interesting. I mean, so they're, they're definitely moving down that path, Kartik, like like you said too. And it's, uh, I mean, they're hiring all the big guns to to actually acquire these rights. And, and then I'm sure, hopefully, behind the scenes, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we best um, broadcast these? How do we best set these, set these up to succeed? Uh, should be interesting times to watch, and, and definitely going to be a big player, as is Amazon Prime and, and uh, other broadcasters too on the on the digital side. Now, speaking of uh, streaming, uh, Fubo TV has added nine more local NBC networks to its legal streaming service in the United States. The addition of the nine cities means that the over-the-air NBC network is now available to 48% of U.S. households. Uh, those nine cities includes one of my own, West Palm Beach, so I can watch the Saturday 12.30 Eastern Time Premier League game on NBC uh, locally through Fubo instead of on NBC Universal. So that's that's great news for me. And uh, of course, now I can access all of the other over-the-air NBC programming. So that's, uh, that's a big one. And, and uh, it, it, every week they're adding more and more cities um, and hopefully they'll uh, be adding the lo- more and more local of the, the Fox, of, Fox affiliates too because um, with the World Cup coming up this summer, um, having Fox over-the-air available through streaming is going to be huge. Commentators uh, J.P. Delcamera and Shep Messing have revealed that they will serve as managing directors of a United Women's Soccer uh, League expansion team in uh, uh, Farmington, Connecticut. The club who don't have an will play the East Com- Eastern Conference against clubs from Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Uh, by the way, Connecticut keeps coming up as a potential expansion market for NWSL. Nothing has happened there, but uh, anytime I have conversations uh, on uh, off the record with uh, or on background with people around NWSL, which is the top division in the U.S., uh, that market comes up, or the Hartford market is more specific. So some sad news this week, and that's uh, Jimmy Armfield has passed away. He was uh, 82. He had a long and very spectacular career as a footballer, uh, making over 500 league appearances for Blackpool, Back in the day when Blackpool was one of the best teams in England, uh, to being on the World Cup squad for England when they won the 1966 World Cup. Then from his uh, playing career, he moved into a managerial uh, career and uh, he picked up the pieces actually at Leeds United after Brian Clough uh, left the club and helped Leeds uh, get all the way to the European Cup final in 1975 uh, and almost beat Bayern Munich uh, but there was very controversial circumstances where yes. about, about the referee I mean, there was one of those games where it could have easily gone Leeds way if, if the referee was fair in that, in that one then he began a career as a, a soccer commentator uh, and that's where I knew him best in terms of hearing him uh, every week um, for 30 plus years on BBC um, Five Live as well as BBC World Service 
And I just want to play a snippet of his voice too, because I think a lot of the listeners may not remember the name, but they may remember the voice. Uh, and when they hear the voice, they might go, okay, I remember that guy. But let me go ahead and play a short clip of uh, Jimmy Armfield. He maybe was right in that. Footballer of the Year in 1967, Charlton retired at the age of 37. And like others in the World Cup squad, he went into management. He was easily the most successful of them all. I was a staff coach with the FA from the age of, I think, about 20. There you go. So it's a very, uh, I think it's from Yorkshire, but definitely a Northern English uh, accent and uh, someone, unfortunately, that uh, passed away this week, but definitely a legend. And anything to add there, Kartik, in terms of uh, your memories of Jimmy Armfield? Yeah, I was actually um, disappointed when he passed away that all of the discussions were about Blackpool and about 1966 and England. Uh, I threw out a tweet saying, hey, I mean, I remember Best is the guy that that uh, really recovered a horrible situation for Leeds United and got them. They only finished ninth or tenth of the league that season, the, the, the club year that he took over, but got them to the European Cup final, which uh, you mentioned it was controversial. I think they were flat out robbed in that match uh, against Bayern, as they had been two years prior in the, in the UEFA Cup final against uh, Milan. Leeds has had a very unlucky record in Europe. You can even uh, fast forward to the David O'Leary years, right, 2001 against uh, Valencia, right? But um, very unlucky. Uh, but that's my memory of him uh, is more about his management and recovery of, of, of that great Leeds and uh, thankfully, the next day, the Guardian ran a uh, a, a uh, in memoriam uh, by uh, Gordon McQueen, who, of course, is one of the great players on that Leeds. One of the players who, by the way, had been most open to Brian Clough and not hostile in his 43 or 44 day reign that preceded our field. And he had some very, very touching and nice things to say. So I was glad that I don't want to take credit for it because I think other people are thinking the same thing. But I threw out there a tweet uh, uh, Monday morning saying, hey, what about uh, what about uh, Jimmy Armfield, the, uh, the manager, not just the player? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, from a player to a manager to a commentator, somebody that will be uh, definitely missed. And for me, again, personally, it's just I remember him more as a commentator. Um, but and then I would of, often read about uh, him as a player, and then or hear interviews about him as a manager. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance. Not old enough to actually remember those times. But uh, as a football commentator on the radio, just a iconic voice and um, just somebody that will be uh, duly missed. The next episode of This Is Football, the series on NBC, SN, hosted by Joe Scarborough, will air on Saturday, February third at two. 3 p.m. Uh, this one will focus on the North London Derby featuring the fans, culture, and history of Arsenal against Spurs. We've seen the uh, the preview for it, Chris, and I have to warn our listeners, Pierce Morgan will be featured. <laughs> which, which is funny, though. Too. I laugh, though, just because... Um and, and, and probably NBC Sports doesn't know this. I mean, because they've come into soccer relatively late. But Pierce Morgan, who, for like, what, for two seasons, did... Um, uh, analysis, studio analysis for Fox Sports, for Fox Soccer, doing, I think, usually FA Cup, they pull him, bring him in the studio. Or and whenever Arsenal played. Whenever Arsenal played, and, and then Arsenal would be losing a halftime 2-0 or something like that, and go on this on this huge rant about they should sack uh, Wenger, and then the final score was <laughs> Arsenal won like 4-2 or something like that. And, and it's, 
So, so I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, that's just that's just part of the baggage. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other baggage. But I was disappointed to see that they interviewed him because I'm like, oh, of all people, you have to interview Piers Morgan. Oh, God. So, sorry, Chris. I don't know if you were you were making that up or, 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 or you remembered, but it was two 0 They were down to Spurs. He goes on a rant, but makes a complete fool out of himself, and they win five two. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was that match. Right. I remember that distinctly. And then there was also um, his infamous tweet about uh, Aaron Ramsey. Uh, I, uh, he's a complete liability. I don't know what Wenger sees in this guy. Um, <laughs> Ramsey starts scoring after that, a goal in every game. Um, so that, that, that tweet has come back to haunt uh, Pierce Morgan many times. Yeah. Yeah. And this is going back to the days when Fox Sports and they really honestly thought this, that bringing in Piers Morgan to be the studio analyst for a halftime show, you mean for the FA Cup, that was the reason that uh, the ratings increased by, say, 10 10 percent or whatever the number was, which is complete BS, because, you know, to me, I don't think people are tuning in to watch Piers Morgan. It's depending what the game is that day. That's what people are tuning in for. And uh and to spend a, who knows how much money to bring him in, uh, I, I think it was just ridiculous. But I won't go on, on a rant uh, anymore about that. All right, Kartik. So, uh, so a FIFA official this week has said that uh, there will be VAR at this summer's World Cup. But uh, his mention of this was uh, premature, given that it hasn't been agreed upon yet. Uh, IFAB, which is soccer's rule-making body, must approve the VAR system for the World Cup at its annual meeting of representatives from FIFA and the four British associations on March 2nd. And uh, uh, FIFA supposedly also is looking at uh, finding a advertiser or sponsor. Uh, you mean kind of uh, you mean VAR brought to you by who knows who? I don't know, Jamie Vardy, <laughs> some, some, something. So, so that's where we're at. It lo- looks like it's going to happen. But it'll be interesting, Kartik, because um, France has gotten rid of their uh, goal line technology system because uh, they've had a whole bunch of issues with it not working. And we've talked about this too. Uh, the German one, there's been a lot of criticism about that. Uh, Major League Soccer, which is interesting too because I saw a Soccer America post this week saying about how great it's been. But with the Major League so- Soccer system too, there's been a lot of question marks about... Um, when it's used and why it isn't used at certain times. Uh, and of course, the, the Premier League is looking into it. Serie A has been using it. So there's lots of si- different types of systems that are being used. And it'll be interesting to see if it does happen, which is the one that the World Cup or FIFA picks. And knowing FIFA, they'll probably pick one of their own that's completely different and it'll all confuse us. Yeah, um, final piece of news this week. Uh, the most interesting groupings from the UEFA Nations League, Germany, France, and the Netherlands, that's uh, a group of death. Spain, Croatia, England, that's a group of death. Portugal, Italy, Poland, uh, that uh, may not be a group of death, although it is interesting. I, I, I think, uh, obviously, most interesting will be to see how Italy fares against two, uh, two nations right now who are, um, quite frankly, better than they are in Portugal and Poland. Uh, games will begin in September of 2018. We've talked about this before. There are very, very few friendly dates left for European, for UEFA members, uh, thanks to this. Uh, if you want to see the whole uh, Nations League uh, uh, draw, uh, go go to uh, a, a news outlet, including ESPN, who is the rights holder in the dates. I'm actually getting a little more excited about this tournament as we get closer to it. It was uh, a strange idea at first. Uh, but now um, I'm realizing it's going to give us some good competitive international football. And like any new, anything new, it has to grow on us. So once they kick a ball, I think we'll get 
genuinely excited about this. What, what do you think, Chris? What, what are you looking at from a Welsh perspective uh, uh, in this? Yeah, so, so Wales is in the draw with uh, Republic of Ireland and Denmark. Uh, Ireland that um, obviously just in this World Cup qualifying was the team that uh, knocked Wales, well, advanced into the playoffs, uh, through the playoffs, and, and ultimately got uh, defeated. But I, I'm looking at this as it's it's entertaining. And defeated by Denmark, ironically enough. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's very, very familiar there. Uh, so it's going to be competitive. I mean, so even like looking at the, the Germany, France, Holland. I mean, Spain, Croatia, England. I mean, these are good matches between good teams. I think it's going to add a whole a whole level, a new level of excitement to these friendlies. I think there's going to be more anticipation about watching these games because there is going to be more meaningful results of this. And for teams like Wales or, or Scotland or other teams, there's an opportunity here to qualify for Euro 2020 through this UEFA Nations League and as you get promoted up from like one tier to the next tier to the next tier, etc. So um, I'm excited. I, I want to wait and see uh, when the first matches kick off how this whole thing fits together and uh, kind of the the rhythm of these games and the timing of these games and, and, and how they're promoted, etc. Even though we had the UEFA Nations League draw today, very little fanfare, very little uh, excitement on social media. And uh, it was something I had to kind of seek out to find out um, um, the actual draw results. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see what happens. I, I, I'm excited uh, and I think it's going to be huge. I think it's going to be a really big, uh, exciting tournament um, uh, to watch. It adds a whole, whole new level of, of excitement. Right, and there's a promotion and relegation between A, B, C, and D. It's too much to explain here. Just uh, yeah. check it out, ESPN FC, Guardian, uh, wherever you get your football news. Yeah, and also it, it's to me it will kill the. And anytime you mention the, the word friendly, uh, a lot of the MLS fanboys will say meaningless friendly, um, and 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 I, I, I totally disagree with that. Yes, there are me there are meaningless friendlies that happen, whether it's club soccer or international soccer. Um, but it, oftentimes, some of the friendlies and the best games I've seen in my life have been friendlies. And um, I mean, it's still two teams on the field, and for this international side of things in terms of the UEFA Nations League uh, I think it does away with the whole idea of a meaningless friendly these are friendlies but really they're competitive well, matches they're, well they're not friendlies right 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 exactly they're friendly games but they're not friendlies right exactly all right, so let's move on to TV ratings. Um, some big numbers this weekend out of Liga MX. Uh, we, last week we had uh, Walter Franco on the show to talk about Liga MX and uh, Landon Donovan. But some big numbers. Um, 1.3 million people watched uh, Nakaxa against Chivas on uh, Univision and Univision Deportes on Saturday, uh, which is huge. Uh, 1.1 million people watched uh, Pumas against uh, Club America on Univision and uh, Univision Deportes. And then you had some big numbers, too, from the Premier League. So you had Man City against Newcastle on NBC over the air. Uh, that one had uh, 890,000 viewers on Saturday. And then you had uh, Burnley Man United, uh, 452,000 people on NBCSN. Uh, Southampton against Spurs had 428,000 people on NBCSN. That game uh, actually was on Telemundo, too, and that one had over, I think, 250,000 people watching that one, too. So, so big numbers when you combine the two together. And then the U.S. women's national team against Denmark on ESPN, uh, like you mentioned, Kartik, on Sunday, that one had uh, 304,000 viewers. And any uh, analysis there or anything interesting that jumps out at you? Not really. I mean, I think... It would have been nice maybe to see 
a bigger number for that NBC game on Saturday, but uh, the number for the NBCSN games uh, both were pretty high, uh, yep. relatively speaking. And, and keep in mind, Burnley Man United was running concurrent with an Arsenal game on CNBC. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's move on to listener mailbag. Uh, we've got uh, one piece of mail this week. This is from Josh Dens from Buffalo, and he posted a review of the podcast on iTunes. And Josh said, uh, love watching soccer, but as a social media enthusiast, I especially pay attention to pre- and post-match coverage. Having professional opinions to listen to and compare to my own opinions is a fun thing to have. It's a podcast unlike any other. Highly recommend the pods uh, to any soccer fan. Keep up the good work, lads. Well, Josh, uh, we appreciate your kind words and posting that review on iTunes. Um, it is it is unique. And, and actually, it's, it's funny because we're getting fewer viewers than our Premier League format that we used to have uh, for many years. Uh, but the amount of feedback and listener mail that we do get is far greater than anything we've ever had with the Premier League coverage. Um, so it's, it's different. It's unique. It's its own niche. I enjoy doing it. And... Uh, we enjoy bringing the um, the news and analysis uh, to you, the listeners. So if you do like it, uh, or even if you don't like it, just post a review on iTunes. We'd greatly appreciate it. And um, and if you have any feedback, uh, whether it's questions, comments, uh, you name it, let us know at web at worldsoccertalk.com. You can send us an email there. You can tweet us at worldsoccertalk and uh, message us on Facebook through facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. And we would love to to read those out on there. All right, coming up right now is our interview with Lee Dixon about uh, a new documentary that's been released in the United States on Amazon. It's called 89. It discusses uh, Arsenal's famous 1989 season uh, that built up to that final match of the season against Liverpool at Anfield and against all the odds uh, something miraculous happens. So we'll have Lee Dixon talk about that as well as his coverage and analysis and uh, his work with uh, NBC Sports. We're honored to have Lee Dixon with us today. We're going to discuss his NBC and ITV, among other things, commentary in a few minutes. But first, let's start on this documentary from Universal 89 uh, that is being released shortly. And uh, I think everybody listening knows the story of uh, that epic match, Arsenal-Liverpool, and, and uh, how things ended in the 1989 season, arguably the most dramatic finish in the history of a first division season in England, uh, probably rivaled by 2012, obviously, with the two Manchester clubs. Uh, Lee, let me ask you, in the lead-up to the game that week, obviously George Graham, uh, known for one nils, um, kind of defensive tactics, you're going to Anfield. What... What did he say to you guys to get you ready to try and win a game by two goals and go after uh, Liverpool, who at the time were the gold standard in English football? Yeah. Um, well, we had a little bit of a break, say break, because obviously due to the, the hills that disaster during the season, that's why the game was moved to the end of the season post uh, FA Cup because of that delay. So there was a little bit of downtime um, from a training point of view. Wasn't that very, wasn't intense uh, leading up to the game. It was quite relaxed. He took all the pressure off the players. George was brilliant at putting the pressure on and uh, demanding the best out of, of you as an individual and the team. And he was um, a disciplinarian, very demanding in what he expected on the training pitch and, and again on on the pitch uh, for matches. But that week he was a little bit laid back. He was a little bit more relaxed and the players sensed that. I think that 
been a um, quite a real strain of mind. Uh, I think also that the fact that the, the scoreline that we needed to win by two clear goals was, was such extraordinary to go to Anfield and try and do that. I don't think we'd lost by two clear goals for a long, long time there. Certainly the uh, team of that, that era, an absolutely phenomenal football club and everything they seem to touch turned to gold. So the pressure was a little bit off us in that respect. And I think the flip side of it, it was kind of put Liverpool in a, in a strange frame of mind where normally they just went out and played their game and won most of their matches they played on. They were on a phenomenal run towards the end of that season anyway. So they were playing catch-up. They'd already caught us and gone past us. So, and they only needed to lose the game by 1-0 and they would still win the league. So it was a slightly winning atmosphere for them to play in as well. So I think the combination of those two things um, put that week in quite a surreal place. Um, certainly leading up to the game, we were really, really cool and there, was, there seemed to be no pressure on us. George kept saying to us, you know, everyone's, everyone's expecting us to fall over. We've already had two bad results leading up to that final game drawing at home against Wimbledon and losing the game before against Derby. So um, he goes, you know, the people are, are looking and, and they're saying they've already lost it and it's Liverpool's to, to, to just pick the trophy up. And there was certainly an element of that when we turned up at Anfield that night. There was a feeling of a celebration from the, from the Liverpool supporters. It felt like that. And I think that puts them into game mode just before we, we, uh, we, we kicked off and George gave a brilliant pre-match speech, which you know we will talk talk about in the in the documentary. That he basically said, um, you know, keep it tight in the first first half. We don't have to come out and score two goals straight away. They'll be expecting us to come at us, and we won't. We'll just play our normal game. Nil nil at half time is a good result, and then if we can try and get a goal early in the second half, um, put the pull a bit of pressure on them. They'll start to worry a bit. We only need one more goal. And then we'll go and pitch it at the end. And it was kind of like, we looked at him when he said, that, you know, we kind of looked at him hoping that deep down we'd believe it. But in our heads, it was kind of like, is that really going to happen? Well, we might as well give it a go. We're here now, so let's, you know, get straight for the game and put our kit on and see what we can do. And lo and behold, you know, the, the, the rest is history. As your career went on, uh, you and Tony Adams on that back line for Arsenal, inextricably linked, gave so much of uh, the spine, right? Nigel Winterburn, too, right? All, all of this in terms of um, character and building Arsenal into not only a title-winning team in 1989, but then the team Arsene Wenger took over, uh, winning three titles. Uh, talk a little bit about your your partnership with uh, Adams and the rest of the defenders and, and that season and how it came together that year. Well, he, George, George wanted to build a team from the back. He's ideal, which is a little bit strange because he wasn't that type of player. You know, they called him the stroller. He used to play around, uh, score goals. He was very sort of lackadaisical uh, um, in his style. Um, discipline, you wouldn't have thought, was the, the first thing that comes to mind when he was putting the team together. But he had a vision of building uh, a back four and a defence. Um, and making it solid and in order to do that we, we did uh, defensive drills for us basically on our own every single day of our lives um, very rarely got a day off um, in the, in, from, from a regime point of view it was kind of back four work warm up back four work and then we might get a little bit of joy and go and 
join in with the rest of the lads and do a bit of extra clean work and maybe a bit of cheating and crossing and cheating. But that four was, was, we were drilled. We, he'd take us to a pitch, the four of us, we wouldn't even have a ball. He'd put us in, a, in our line, across the pitch, and then he would have the ball under his arm and he would walk all over the, the pitch. And then every now and again, he would jog into certain areas. And all he was looking for was to us to react to where the ball was and what we would do if the ball was in this part of the pitch and it was moving towards maybe me, where would Tony Adams go, where would Steve Bolt go in reaction and in that was a sort of visual picture of us all tied together by a piece of rope and he would keep going on about the piece of rope, they're all tied together, if one moves over there, you're holding the piece of rope and the mate comes with you at the same distance and if somebody drops towards the penalty box, you drop with him because you get pulled back by the piece of rope. And, and it's kind of a, a visual picture that I've got to this day. And I, every time I talk to young players um, about the art of defending, I, I talk about this piece of rope and they all look at me and they look off and see the surreal earlier to describe the week leading up to that final match, which we, we must remember and note, had been delayed because of Hillsborough, and yeah. 1989 uh, lives in so many people's memories, uh, not only because of uh, th- that match, but also because of Hillsborough and what happened uh, on April 15th, but yeah. uh, talk about your feeling, and the feeling of your teammates when Michael Thomas's goal uh, goes in. Is it just as surreal? Is it disbelief? Is it realization that you've won the title? How did you feel at that moment? Um, in all honesty, it was it was a it's a, a disbelief uh, mixed with um, incredible uh, emotion of um, we've actually achieved it, and then quickly covered over and washed over by the waste of panic because. Um, you then you then think that the worst is going to happen, and they got. And we didn't really know how long to go. There was to go. We knew it was at the end. Literally just before um, John Lukic got the ball, and I talk about this in the documentary that 
and just asked the referee how long to go uh, when John Barnes went running off into the corner and should have put it on the corner flag and the game was over. But he didn't. He tried to typical Liverpool way. He tried to juggle in the box and score another goal. <laughs> um, thankfully, Kevin, thankfully, Kevin Richardson. You, you don't know how many Liverpool supporters through the years have mentioned that to me when I mentioned the game, when I mentioned 1989, well, we love Barnsley, but if he had just gone, John Barnes had just gone to the corner, it's over. But history is what it is. Good, continue. Yeah. Well, you, you, you also, which I didn't know at the time, and making this documentary and interviewing and speaking to people, I did some radio interviews in, in London, and John Aldrich was on the other line on the radio, and he was telling me, and we've talked about um, John Barnes and I said to him, what about that you're giving him a load of stick after or at some point, why didn't you run into the corner flag? And he, and he said to me, yeah, did you see me? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, watch the video, watch the video when you, when you replay it time and I've, and I've seen it, must have seen it 50 times. And I never realised that as the ball goes back to John Lukic when uh, they took the ball off uh, Barnsley, John looks up and he was he was, he was exhausted. He couldn't kick the ball anyway. That's why he threw it. He looked up and threw the ball to me. But if you want John Aldridge is standing right in front of um, John Lukic when he throws the ball, and he actually puts his arms up to stop him throwing it to take a free kick and a booking and just the way side because he knew the game was over. So he puts his arms up to, to block the throw and then realise last minute takes his arms down and went, oh no, they won't score from this. And I, I've never seen it before, and I've rewound it. Sure enough, both his arms go up to try and stop him throwing it, and then he puts them down. Ball comes out to me, and then we all know what happens from there. But when the ball actually eventually goes to Michael and he's going through on goal, I'm just thinking it all goes into slow motion for me then, because I'm, I'm, I've hit the ball to Alan, Alan's put it inside, and then Michael's made this roll and got the, the, the deflection, and he's now through on goal on Grobelar. And he just missed the chance uh, 15 minutes earlier that he should have scored, but he didn't. And he's running through on goal. I'm now 40, 50 yards away, just jogging up the pitch because there's nothing I can do now my game's done. Um, and I see him going through, and I was thinking, why are you running in slow motion? He looked like he's running treacle. And I was like, <laughs> put ball in there. Because I saw he's about the edge of the box, and I can see Houghton coming in, uh, Steve Nicol coming in, all converging on him. And I swear to this day that Houghton gets his toe on the end of the ball and kicks it away for a throw-in. And, and every time I see it, and I've been to 25 viewings of this film now, every time I see it, I think he's going to kick it away. And I've actually went to the photographers who took some pictures behind the goal. And you'll see the photos we saw brilliantly in the dock. They bring the photos alive. So the photo is a still of Michael putting the ball in the net. But they somehow make the ball move. I don't know how they do it. It's really very technical. I wasn't in on that day when, they, when, they, when the, the geniuses did that. But you, you see how foot literally touched, the end of his toe touches the ball as Michael flicks it over Grobler. It's, it's, it's so tight that it gets the ball away. It's, it's incredible. And as I said, when the ball goes in the net, I see the net go, because I see him running off. I know it's him because I see Nigel win the burn start running with his arms up even though the ball hasn't hit the net because he's up there you can see the ball going over the line and as soon as the ball goes over the line I've talked to you about all those emotions and what I was going through I immediately 
very professional of me, immediately burst out crying on the halfway line. <laughs> I just couldn't stop myself. I just had this overwhelming rush of emotion and tears start flowing down my eyes. And I, and I run back to the halfway line, uh, to my spot, thinking, oh my God, if the kick off and come down my side, I'm not going to be able to see anything because my eyes are, my eyes are watering. Luckily, they went down the other side and they got another put the ball in the net uh, sorry put the ball in the in the goal for another I think I was throwing and then across and then Michael gets the ball in the edge of the box and coolly like a cucumber just rolled the ball back to John Lukic he kicks you up the pitch and uh, then all hell breaks loose because the final whistle goes so and I, I can't really in all honesty I can't really remember much uh, happened after that it's just the, and I have to watch the video to actually see what I did who I was and I, I, I remember the one thing, and you've touched on it, but there was a huge amount of um, respect going on before the game, um, obviously paying tribute to the 96 who lost their lives. And we handed flowers out before the game to the, to the cop and to the supporters. And there was, a, there was almost a permission given by the Liverpool fans to, like, pay your respect, thank you very much, now we can get on with this game. That's, because we were very conscious of the fact that probably a lot of people thought it was the right thing that Liverpool won the league that season. They'd just won the FA Cup. Hillsborough happened. It was kind of, do you know what? It's probably meant to be, but that handing over the flowers and that permission that they gave us um, to say, right, we're playing football now, let's go and the best team win. That, that for me was, I remembered that when the final whistle went and I, I remember, um, because I've watched it, I can't remember that, where, where I was running, what I was doing. And I saw myself going around shaking hands with the Liverpool players and making sure that the the the, um, the excitement didn't take over the moment. It was a moment to say, look, it was, it was a fair game, and they would pay respect to you now. And then we'll go off and enjoy ourselves, you know, outside the stadium and in our dressing room or whatever. So I do remember that that moment being very in tribute to the to the '96 that lost their lives. Uh, a, f- a few um, weeks later, or actually maybe uh, six weeks later, you, you traveled here to Florida uh, for preseason, and, and I saw uh, you play against Independiente, and it, it was a match which, quite frankly, had an excessive amount of security in the wake of Hillsborough, in the wake of uh, uh, Heisel and uh, the Bradford City fire, because people in the United States, they had very, uh, very negative and, and I would say skewed stereotypes about English football. So we had an excessive amount of security uh, here for that match. Do you remember uh, that match and that trip well at all? Well, um, I remember, I don't, I don't remember the, um, the actual game itself, apart from the fact it was about 120 degrees. <laughs> yes. I never played in heat like it. Um, and it was just because we trained, we were training really early in the morning to try and avoid the heat. And we would literally go onto the pitch uh, in our tra- training ground and do two minutes work and then run into the shade and we're just basically doused with a, a hose pipe. And I, I kept looking at the lads going, we can't, we, you know, literally a minute of work and you couldn't breathe and you couldn't run. It was just ridiculous. And that, that was the, the highlight of that trip or the, the biggest memory of that trip was how hot it was. And I remember starting the game and the Argentinian players were like running around as if it was like the middle of January. It was just, they were like, yeah, it's not been really even sweating. <laughs> and I was like, we, we're so not acclimatised to this. We really are going to struggle. 
and you forgive me, but I don't even know what the, what the end what the score was at the end. Did we draw one all? Right? I I believe so. Quite frankly, I can't remember either. I just remember being so excited that the champions of England were playing a game in Florida. I was I was a youngster at the time. I was in middle school. I was starved for high level football in my community. So I just remember being excited about going to the game uh, and uh, knowing about Michael Thomas and having seen the clips of that, albeit having seen the clips a week or two after it happened. That's the way it used to be in the States. Um, fast forward. Yeah, a po- yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's sort of the our back, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's the case in preseason in general uh, often. Fast forward a quarter century, Lee, and you are a uh, co-commentator for uh, NBC Sports uh, as the Premier League explodes in the United States, as it becomes, uh, quite frankly, a mainstream sport. Uh, not, not only football as a sport, but the league itself becomes uh, a mainstream happening on American television. Uh, t- t- talk a little bit about that, how, uh, how you feel being a part of uh, the growing revolution of the Premier League on television here in the United States. Well, I've, I've been very lucky. Um, when I finished playing, I started working for the BBC in, in England and then um, moved over when they lost some of the rights and moved over to ITV Sport, who then had um, a lot of TV rights um, over in the UK and I was lucky enough I got approached by NBC when when they first um, got the rights probably four years ago was it now or something like that yeah about five now Um, and Pierre was it five years ago wow Pierre Pierre Moussa the the production guy over in the States came we had a meeting in London and said look we want to set this team up we want to we want to be the best we want to throw our resources at this because they saw the vision of what the Premier League could be, what it was in England, how popular it was, and said, we want to do this thing really, really well. We want to, we want to get the best guys in. We want to do this. And I, I was, I was, I was in from the day one. As soon as I, I met with Pierre, he sold. He didn't have to sell Premier League football to me, but he sold the American market to me. And he said, look, this is going to be on NBC. A lot of the games will be on. You know, national TV, we've got NBC, FM as well. Um, this is going to be big. We want to grow the game. The whole, the whole ethos about him and the NBC team is to grow the game um, to what it is or what it could its potential in the US. Um, and I've got a lot, of, a lot of attachments to the US. My wife's a US citizen. Um, we have a house over over here. I'm in, I'm in uh, America right now. Um, so. I was like, yeah, I really want to be a part of that because I see my future maybe being longer, a long term over in the US anyway. So this is a perfect opportunity for me. And so I absolutely, I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking to Americans, etc. But the, the level of uh, the level of detail at NBC, the level of it's, it has to be right up there with the best broadcasters sports broadcasters I've worked with and um, there's nothing left to chance everything is given to you every opportunity a little bit like Arsene Wenger really in that respect he gives you every opportunity to be the best you possibly can there's no stone left unturned and then it's up to you you know he can't do Arsene can't kick the ball for you Pierre and the team over there can't make you talk intelligent football talk on uh, to, to the nation you do that bit yourself um, but the, the opportunity and the platform to do it has been 
absolutely second to none. And as you said, uh, four or five years down the line, the game has grown. The, the level of um, every year we have a, a kind of uh, assessment of where we're at and how we're doing. And we're always, every single year, we always go, yeah, brilliant. We've knocked the lights out, not good enough. What are we going to do next? How are we going to make it better? How are we going to push the envelope to, to, to being better at giving this brilliant sport to the Americans the best we possibly can? And uh, I absolutely love working for them. Uh, um, most of my uh, work is co-coms in England. We've got a brilliant team. And that was, sorry, that I forgot one thing. That was one of the things that, in, in the meeting with Pierre, first of all, which I didn't want to be involved in, was I don't want to Americanise the game. In, in that respect, I said, look, if I'm going to work for the company, then you need to get me, you need to get Lee Dixon talking about what I know, which is football, Premier League football, that is what I know. So please don't ask me to talk to, to call it soccer or to call it anything other than that's normal for me. And I will try and, try and share my experiences as a 22-year 22 22 pro in the game and share that with the, with the American public and that's what and he said that's exactly what we want we don't want to do we want them so that's why uh, Carl, Carl Martino obviously plays for the US national team he's a brilliant analyzer knows the game inside out um, front of house he's the only American we have um, at the front of the, the camera and the rest are all English based um, so we're bringing you know the Premier League to NBC as we see it, and I, and, I, and I, when I watch American football in the U, in, in, in the UK, I want to I want to listen to Americans talk about because they know the game. And there's a guy I can't remember his name who broadcasts the NFL in, in England, and he's he's brilliant. He knows the game inside out. He presents, and the players know he knows the game. And I listen to him, and I know he knows the game because I can just tell. And yet, I still go. Yeah, but what's the American guy think? Because he, he grew up with it. He, uh, I, I believe that that's the way to broadcast. Listen to. I'm not saying that uh, Americans don't know f- football. They do. They do. But they, they, I, I'm, they can talk from their point of view. My point of view is played 15 years at Arsenal. So I'm going to share that with you. And when I see something on the pitch, you know, I will, I will share it as. as, as knowledgeable as I can and get it over in a language that people hopefully can understand. Final question, Lee. Uh, as uh, someone who grew up in the Northwest, uh, how uh, amazing is it to commentate on and see Manchester now as maybe the capital of world football? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Manchester and I grew up as a Manchester City fan. Uh, season ticket holder in the old main road. Um, so I've got a lot of affection for that that blue half of town um, not so much for the, the red half although I'd like to think I'm pretty um, impartial when I come to commentate um, and it's, it's a brilliant that's all uh, the Premier League has been waiting for for a while because now Man City has caught Manchester United up in lots of ways uh, still still behind in other ways but um, two, as you said giants of European football they, they're now going hopefully get, get to a head to head at some point it looked like it was going to be uh, a bit closer at some point this, this season but Manchester City have been absolutely phenomenal so far it's not over we've all talked about can they be caught and uh, I do think they'll go on and win it but um, I think there'll still be a couple of twists here and there um, we're hopeful anyway
but it's great for the game and, and Chelsea's not going anywhere. Arsenal look like they're rebuilding again. Tottenham, when they get the new stadium, is uh, going to be a force to be reckoned with again. It's such an amazing um, place to play football. Uh, and Liverpool will, will do what Liverpool do best, and that's give you everything and then give you nothing the week after. <laughs> And on that note, Lee Dixon, uh, we, we, by the way, for those listening, we, we're recording this less than 48 hours after uh, Liverpool's result at the Liberty Stadium. Reference to that, obviously. Uh, uh, we thank you for your time. And uh, the, the film is 89, uh, Universal uh, Film. Okay, Kartik, so where can listeners find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at KKFLA737 on Twitter. The, uh, DMs are open, so feel free to send me a DM uh, or at worldsoccertalk.com and other places uh, uh, on the web. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, AudioBoom, and WorldSoccerTalk.com. And like I said, if you do enjoy the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. And Kartik, what should they do? Enjoy your football. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.